Let us pray. Lord, thank you that we can come into your presence because you promised that when two or three would be gathered together in his name, he would be here in our midst. And so we gather together in his name and ask, O Lord, that you would make good your promise to be here with us, that you would draw us close to you, open our hearts and our minds to you, awaken in us that which you desire, form in us that which you want to form. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. We yield to you. And we thank you that you are here. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, the scripture is both about leadership and it also has to do with how we see God. I am keenly conscious as someone who is a leader that the faith that most people put in leaders in any institution, education, politics, law, church, entertainment, it's about that high. We cynically expect leaders not to be who they say they are. So we are not surprised when there is the latest revelation of Someone whom we esteemed, for example, like Bill Cosby, who has gone into this huge, huge, terrible, terrible set of admissions around the things that he did to take advantage of women. We are not surprised if we even look on the cover of the National Enquirers who are going through the grocery line and hear about back-channel arguing between Barack and Michelle Obama. You name the celebrity. Donald Trump? The Kardashians, it, it all kind of plays out in front of us like this parade of comical absurdity. And therefore, while we continue to like the entertainment value, we really are like people on a highway who, who rubberneck when there's an accident. That's sort of what public life feels like for many of us. The actual aspiration to respect is almost entirely absent from people with any kind of public responsibility at all. Our cynicism is, is that they really know better than any of us, the rest of us, and probably they're in that position because, well, they're maybe a little bit smart, but it's mostly because they had breaks. They knew people. And in fact, the, almost the expression of power in our culture is the phrase, I know a guy. Meaning, you know somebody who can get you in to do something, to get something for you that you would never have been able to get otherwise. You have connections. And that becomes, for at least us in our time, one of the chief symbols of power that we respect. No matter how you got those connections, no matter what you had to do under the table or otherwise to be able to build that connection of power, that is one of the things that we continue to esteem in our amoral culture that we know as now the United States of America. That situation is not unfamiliar to what's going on in the scriptures. In fact, that's exactly what's happening in the Jeremiah story. There was this king 
His name was Zedekiah. The translation of that name means God, the Lord, is righteous. It was like a banner. It, would, it was like a trailer that you'd see on a television. He, he would assemble with his armies to, to extraordinary theater in a way that was meant to be incredibly impressive. And yet, his reign was a complete political and religious disaster. So that in the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was standing up, speaking against the royal leadership. And when we get into that place that we have the lesson that we have this morning, and in fact, the indictment of Zedekiah, the Lord is righteous, is even seen in the closing line, when who is the God that will come and save them? Not the Lord is righteous, but the Lord our righteousness. In other words, God actually creating a change in people so that what the leaders look like actually embody the things that God wants. If there is any time at which we need leaders like that, who embody the hopes, the dreams, the desires, and the faithfulness that does exist within our people, it is now. And because we live in that kind of cynical culture and more or less don't see those sorts of leaders. And even when we do and there's a glimmer of hope, we almost have to expect for there to be some new revelation six months, two years, ten years down the line that proves that it was all a sham. Theater to get me to vote for them or buy the movie ticket or to support them in some way or another. I'm right now beginning to jump into the new Harper Lee novel, not new by any stretch, called Go Set a Watchman. And one of the opening lines of Atticus Finch, the fallen hero, as he's portrayed in this book, is our Congress has lost its sense of aristocracy. When that is the air in which we breathe, it is very difficult, if actually not impossible, For us to have faith in a caring, generous, compassionate God. You see, more often than not, the way we come to faith, when we cross over from some kind of agnosticism or hostility, is through an individual or a group of people that embody for us what we hope God will be. And in getting to know them and being the recipients of their love and their kindness, their generosity, in the kind of care that we had not known before, it gives us hope to think that perhaps the God that they are talking about is, in fact, the God who could make a difference in my life, if I were open to it. And it takes a step of faith, a huge one, in fact, to go from, I like the God that you talk about, to, that's the God I want to serve. And you begin to step away from the place of cynical observance into the place of hunger, where you recognize there's that kind of hunger in your life for this kind of God, and eventually into the place of faith where you say, God, I need you. That's when you cross the line. That's when you're no longer the cynic, but you're the seeker. And you're willing to admit that there is, in fact, hunger in your heart. 
for the God who describes himself as love, compassion, and kindness. I want to say to you this morning that everything about the lessons today talks about that kind of God. I want you to look, first of all, with me at your lessons. You have the bulletin insert, right? Right here? And it really starts actually with the collect at the beginning. This is a collect that goes back to the middle of the 16th century, penned by Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury under Henry VIII. Thomas was living exactly in the kind of political climate that I am describing. Tudor England was corrupt. Henry VIII was not to be trusted. And here he was trying to navigate a reformation that was literally changing the life of the church. And he was sympathetic in the midst of a lot of hostility to those kinds of reforms. And in the midst of this, this man of deep faith and scholarship pens this prayer that was originally meant to come after the conclusion of the prayers of morning prayer, in fact. Look at it with me. It's inc- it's. I find it extraordinarily transparent. He says, Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom. In other words, I am admitting to you that you have the answers and I don't. Which is a great place to start, by the way. He says, you know our necessities before we ask and our ignorance in asking. Now, what he's not saying is you're stupid if you ask God for things. Remember, this prayer was actually placed at the conclusion of a whole set of petitions. So he's not saying you don't ask. But what he's doing is describing the character of much of our asking. Uh, The analogy is like this. Your parents and your four-year-old daughter gets up and comes to you in the morning and it's Saturday and it's about eight o'clock and people are just rolling out of bed. And your daughter says, you know what I'd love for breakfast? Well, what's that? And you're thinking French toast. And the daughter says, pot roast. I'd love pot roast for breakfast. Now, here's what's going on. On the one hand, the child feels free enough to actually express that kind of zany idea. She has no idea, though, of what is being asked of her parents, does she? That that's a meal that probably should have started three hours ago. And that it takes a lot of work. And usually the last thing you do is fix pot roast for breakfast on a Saturday morning or any other morning. In other words, there is ignorance in her asking. But it's certainly not wrong for her to ask. And that's when you turn around and sit down and say, oh, wouldn't pancakes be great this morning? And you sort of work it out that way. Any of you who are parents know what that's like. I, I think often that's what our prayers are like. That it's not wrong that we ask. Just the opposite. God delights in our prayers. No matter how crazy they are, no matter how ignorant they might be, he is, in fact, the fountain of all wisdom. And sometimes the things we ask for are just, is just nuts. But he, he acknowledges, Cramner, that that's the state of often what our prayers are like. In other words, there's no pride in this prayer. In fact, it's an expression of profound humility. 
And so what does he say? Have compassion on our weaknesses, including our lack of knowledge about how we should be praying. Have compassion on our weaknesses. In other words, don't stand up and say, what a stupid thing to ask for. You have no idea. No, no. Compassion on all of the places of weakness, whether we're talking about our relationships, where we're talking about the things inside of us that we wish weren't there, the history of grief or guilt with which we live, the brokenness that might exist in terms of school or business or the other places of our life where there are these standing points of disappointment. Have compassion. Now, what's compassion? Compassion is not the same as sympathy. Sympathy says, oh, I feel really badly that you're going through this. But there's actually nothing that you can do. That's sympathy. And it's not a bad thing. But compassion is different. Compassion says, I am really sorry that you're going through this. Let's figure out what to do together. In other words, compassion is sympathetic. It has that expression of love. But it is actually something where love is acted upon. Compassion is not just sentiment. It's love in action. That's what we see in the Gospel reading. You see, here's Jesus. He's with his disciples. They just come back from a mission trip. He has sent them on. They come back with these extraordinary stories of demons fleeing from people. The kingdom of God coming into being. And they are heady with excitement and probably completely exhausted. And Jesus says, let's go over to the other side of the lake to what's described as a remote place. In other words, away from all of these people. And get over to the other side. So they get in a boat and they're beginning to make their way across the Sea of Galilee. And those who are coming to see Jesus discover that he's not there and they can see him already out on the water and they go, I know where he's going. Follow me. And so they literally circumvent the lake and they get there because it's just a little rowboat with a sail. They actually get there before Jesus and his disciples even get there. So they're they're there to greet them. And what you what is wonderful is what you don't hear Jesus saying, oh, no. I thought we just left those people. And what Jesus doesn't say to them is, you know, I really don't have the time and energy right now. Instead, in the midst of what feels like in Mark's description, an overwhelming throng of people. I mean, literally bringing their sick out and laying them out on the streets. It says Jesus has what? Compassion on them. And he heals their sick. Miracles. And the wonder of it is, Mark makes very clear, is that the only reason they're there is because they're looking for a miracle. This is not a discipleship sign-up. There's no acknowledgement that somehow he is the Lord of the universe, God in the flesh, or anything like that at all. He's just got the gift, you know. And so if you get close, something happens to you. Isn't it wonderful? I mean, it's not dissimilar to people who show up to the miracle healing services to this very famous evangelist, whomever he or she might be, and they're not there to build a relationship with the evangelist. They're in the midst of a crowd of 20,000 or so, and you know what their focus is? I want to get healed in this service. Relationship doesn't matter. It's not even the point. 
And that's exactly what's happening here. And what Jesus does not do is upbraid them and say, you know, you're asking for the wrong thing. Sure, I can do the healing. But what I really want are believers, followers. Are you up for that? Instead, he literally takes them at the point in which they are connecting. And it says he has compassion on them and he heals their sick. This is the God whom we serve. Who in fact does have compassion on our weaknesses. And then Cranmer goes on. Mercifully give us those things for which our unworthiness we dare not. And anybody who wrestles with any sense of shame knows exactly what Cramner is describing. I can't take that part of me out into the light. I would feel like I'd just die. So I don't even talk, want to talk about that. Even though that mean, may mean the very thing that I need God to do more than anything else. Because I can't stand the darkness and the condemnation that I feel inside. Have compassion. Give us those things for which our unworthiness dare not, or our blindness, where we can't see what the real need is. We cannot ask. Give us how, through the worthiness of your Son. Because you see, that's what Jesus does. He takes the places of our shame, our weakness, our brokenness, and our ignorance, and he doesn't look at us and say, shape up. Instead, what he does is literally cross the divide, come by his Holy Spirit, and envelops us with the cloak of his love, and says, as we often hear, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice, come to me all. Not if you have the right things where you need help. If you do this. No, no, no. It is a completely inclusive, uninhibited, unrestricted invitation to come to me no matter what condition you're in, no matter what's going on in your life. This is where you need to be. Anything else is sinking sand. Come to me, all you who are weary. Have compassion, which is exactly what he does. So my question to you is, is that the God that you actually believe in? Do you actually believe in a God who will receive you as you are? Do you actually believe in a God to whom you can disclose anything? Do you actually believe in a God who doesn't count against you the places of your deepest shame and struggle? Do you actually believe in a God who listens to you no matter how bad it is, no matter what you're going through, and doesn't just listen as if somehow like he's on a cloud with his arms crossed waiting for you to get your life together. But instead, in the midst of your dilemma, he's the one who actually comes and brings you in. Because that's who we see in Jesus. So no matter what you're asking even if it's as ridiculous as pot roast for breakfast. The fact of the matter is, is that he is listening, he is caring, and he is inviting you in. Here's a test, a way to know. I don't know what happens here on a typical Sunday morning. I'm assuming it's pretty good, quite honestly. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. 
But more often than not, if there is a place inside of you that is resistant, what actually happens in the worship service is your mind is going a thousand different places. You're checking your phone. Or if you're not, you're thinking about it in your head. You're wondering about this and that. You, your mind continues to be distracted into other things. And it's not because you're ADHD. It's because there's a part of you that is actually resistant inside to coming near the presence of God. And how that gets acted out is you, you say the liturgy, you sing the hymns if you know them. And you will come up and receive communion if invited as a baptized Christian. You'll go through what's here, but there'll be a part of your heart that literally is closed like this to the real presence of God. There's a reason there's a fist inside of you if that is, in fact, the case. And so what I'm really asking is, would you be willing for this God of great compassion to come and undo the fist, to touch those places in your life so that you go from resistance to seeking, to openness, to reception, and that the word, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, becomes God's invitation to you, to you. Because that's really what this service is about. It's an opportunity to come, to offer, to praise, and to receive. These who are making commitments this morning and confirmation and reception and reaffirmation have in fact made that transition. They are learning how to say yes. And I put it that way because we're all learning how to say yes. I'm still learning. There's still parts of me that are resistant. There are parts of me that I don't know about. My All the things that Cramner describes in that prayer fit me to a T. But I'm learning. I'm learning how to let go of my independence into my dependence upon God. I'm learning how to let go of my resistance somehow that I might be more receptive. I'm learning to have my opinions reshaped though they be built into me from the time of I was a young child, that I might more and more see myself and see life from the perspective of what Jesus talks about, shares and believes. It is a gradual process, and the challenge is to keep saying yes as you continue to be changed. They're saying, I'm willing, I'm in. When we go through these promises and these commitments this morning, you will actually be asked within the liturgical format to also say yes. Please don't just say it because it's in the book. Let this be a moment where as far as you are able to say yes, I'll give it a try. that the imitation of Jesus might more and more be something that you can receive and know that the God of great compassion is more than willing to be with you, in you, and beside you each step of the way, leading you not into confusion, but home, his home. 
where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Amen.